For the first time in this trans-Tasman test series, it is the Final Word Cricket Podcast with Adam Collins and Bharat Sundaraisen, Season 15, Episode 26. Baz, we're sat in the RA Vance stand, one of my most uh, favourite favourite vantage points in all of world cricket. Um, there's a test match starting here on Thursday between New Zealand and Australia, the first in eight years. First time we've been hosting together for a while as well. Hello to you. Hello, Adam, and I haven't seen you in a long time, so uh, what better place for us to reconvene yep. uh, but on the Final Word Weekly? And you know what? I, I know they're not our sponsors yet, but doesn't it feel like we're hosting the Dilma Tea Party? <laughs> <laughs> this is such a Dilma Tea Party setting. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I can't think of uh, too many more beautiful places than this to be uh, at first and to be hosting or co-hosting this show. You can see the pitch in the background as well, so that's ideal. And before we even get into anything, just because it's green, don't think it's going to start hooping around and it'll be a three-day test. And I've covered green tests or test matches here with green pitches which have gone all five days. Yeah. I'm yeah. sure you have as well. Yeah, I have too, yeah. The... the perception and reality thing here at New Zealand. So we'll talk a little bit about that today. There have been some T20 action. Of course, there was the test that finished at Rancher yesterday, which you and I haven't had a chance to talk about as yet. Um, we were going to talk to Dan Bredig. I don't think that's going to happen because he's been um, lumped with a task to file before deadline. But we will talk about an important piece that he wrote this week. Um, we've also got um, a conversation to be had around the WPL first mm-hmm. weekend, the WNCL final, the Mercantile Mutual final. So a busy weekly show as ever and yes the the pitch is behind us I doubt this will go up on YouTube in its entirety before the test match starts but it's been marked out it is green. All the usual cliches will, yeah. will, um, will doubtless follow when the photos are posted about, oh, you know, it's uh, the green monster, the green mumba. It'll be all over in two days. Well, it won't be because the lived experience of watching test cricket in this country. Jeff gets in the morning of the test. He's cutting it fine as always. A very Jeff Lemon move. But I got in yesterday a bit earlier than I thought. My flight was cancelled, yeah. so I came in a night earlier. Um, and, yeah, really happy to be back. This is like, I don't know, what's your, what are your experiences of covering test cricket in New Zealand and limited overs cricket in New Zealand over the years. When was the first time you were here? Oh no, I've come here only once in uh, 2020, ah. just before COVID. When uh, you were the New Zealand correspondent for a time? Pretty much, yes. I was like Indo-New Zealand correspondent for that tour and it was funny, right? New Zealand had just play, finished a three-match test series in Australia and literally two weeks later I was here uh, for that tour and it was fa- fabulous because I, the first thing I did was rent a car. I was here for yeah. over a month and a half and I made sure I didn't take any flights. I was just driving all around, mostly by myself. And my first experience was I'd just done a Tasmania uh, to trip with Isha, my wife, not Guha, as I always have to clarify on cricket shows. And, you know, beautiful Tasmania. Is. And then I'd heard so much about New Zealand. I, I thought you were going to say, you know how beautiful Isha is. Of course I do. Yeah, of course. Everybody does. Yeah. <laughs> so, of course I do. Love yeah. your wife. Yeah. Thank you, Alan. Yeah. But I mean, you know, in a respectful manner. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, she is beautiful. Like, she is. She, objectively. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So that doesn't take away from anything. <laughs> yeah, and Let's North move away from this. Yeah, yeah. Another North Island, till I got to Wellington, honestly, I was like, hmm, is it? Is it prettier than Tasmania? I don't think so. And then I got onto that ferry from here, like drove into the ferry and got on, got into the South Island. You get dropped off at Picton and drove from Picton to Christchurch. And I was like, okay, now I know what the fuss is all about. Yeah. It is just extraordinary. And I can't wait to get to the South Island. We will at some point next week. Uh, but cricket-wise, it's the in grounds of obviously interestingly shaped. Uh, uh, 
especially Eden Park. Not all of them are. I think New Zealand gets a bad rap for having these odd-shaped, small boundary kind of uh, venues. But the Basin Reserve is a proper ground, right? And the proper boundaries here. Yeah, maybe shorter than the MCG. And so is the Hagley Oval, another wonderful venue where we will get to uh, very soon. Well-attended cricket is, uh, not just white ball cricket, uh, even most of the test matches, like, they're so family friendly, yeah. these venues, right? Like, yeah, you can uh, bring bring your kids and I also noticed on uh, television and I do remember from that series as well, especially for white ball games, um, the parents are pretty cool with their kids. I've seen kids just escaping, balls just flying in their direction. <laughs> <laughs> the parents are having a good time. But it is just one of the most uh, beautiful countries you can visit generally and we're just fortunate that we get to come here um, and watch cricket. It's a shame it's been eight years for Test cricket here for Australia. I've been back between times for a, a, a T20 triangular. It was Ooh. in 1718. But yeah, the Test series here in 16. I remember well that the packed grass banks and punters gathered beneath the gazebo there, which from memory, that's a war memorial as well. Um, I think there was actually a bushfire up there in the in the hills when we were here, or just behind the hills there, which was a, a concern for a moment or two. But everything settled down on the other side of the ground to where we're sat at the moment. There's the New Zealand Cricket Museum. There's a second-hand bookshop in there too so there's that kind of almost like the county cricket ground vibe to it which adds to the experience only 11,000 capacity but sold out for all four days here well the first four days they don't sell day five until it's required similarly at Christchurch it's sold out for all four days so yeah and talking to a few of the players today when they were netting they're like yeah it is kind of a shame that we haven't been here more often England have been here for test cricket three times since the last time Australia have visited so um, it'd be nice to address that at some stage but yes just pleased to be in situ we'll do a preview ep tomorrow I'm, I'm playing cricket tomorrow so you're going to join me yes uh, and We'll, we'll do that in, game, in, yeah. in, in my whites <laughs> where I'm playing um, in the botanical gardens. So, um, yeah, and look, it's becoming a bit of a destination test as well. I know mm. a lot of people who've flown over mm. uh, for mini tours or mini breaks or even just a weekend away. It's closer to fly to Wellington than it is to fly to Perth. So it's a it's an easy test for Australians to visit as away fans too. Yeah, and the Western Australians uh, in the team who weren't part of the white ball side who have flown from Perth were quite jet-lagged yesterday. Yeah. We have uh, met all of them at the, the Prime Minister's reception. I oh, had that guy. I, I was, uh, you know, like everything in New Zealand, it was like low-key but really cute. Did you meet the PM? I did, and the sports minister, who's okay. a lovely guy, Chris Bishop, came up to me and he said he's a big fan of me. So there you go. It's good to have a sports international sports minister say that to you. Uh, they were just just lovely. And uh, he's the PM who, um, when he was opposition leader, he used to run in New Zealand. He um, just uh, Google him singing bills. It's um, it's uh, one of the more um, cringeworthy bits of social right. media. But boy, it worked. I mean, I know who he is because of it. So um, sometimes you need to put yourself out there, I guess. But. Um, I think when uh, the sports minister spoke first and obviously the ceremony that, you know, the, the welcoming and the, I, I don't know whether that was the haka, it was quite something like, you know, you, it, it's the first thought that came to mind is back in the day, you know, whenever uh, these lands were invaded, it could have been quite intimate. I would have run away. Uh, you know, they put on the show to ward off uh, strangers or potential predators or whatever it is. Uh, it's quite intimidating, you know, when you see it in person. Uh, Pat Cummins, I thought, uh, held his own. Like, so they leave. Uh, I'm not sure what leaf it is. They leave. It's, it starts with tea uh, in, in the Maori tongue. Uh, so you have to go pick it up. And all that was so lovely. But my favorite bit, and Adam, you will love this. I put it out on social media as well, is uh, when the Prime Minister did start speaking. I think within... 40 seconds or so, you know who he mentioned? 
he spoke about his love for the BBL and he said and it's been great to see what you've been doing Michael and you know which Michael he was Michael talking Nisa. about Beautiful. he's on the hashtag Nisha must play campaign is <laughs> the Prime Minister of New Zealand really but yeah that's the he meant and I'm honest what a reference point of all the people who he could cite in this and there he is you know, he's um, just walking oh, yeah, Michael Nisa just had a net behind us um, of all the people he could cite he's gone with a guy who well, you know, it's improbable he will play but mind you if you were doing horses for courses he'd oh, be in yeah. the mix so would Scott Boland the other yeah, squad player and Matt Renshaw's the, the other Australian man. When, when we were here eight years ago, the test was defined by a couple of individual performances. Adam Voges making 239, Usman Kawaja making 140. Kawaja hit 25 boundaries. I reckon 20 of them hit the picket fence down there at extra cover. He was just driving delightfully. It was that summer where he was the best batter in the world for three months when he got back into the Australian side. It was his first century away from Australia. There was a contrasting 100 he made against South Africa later that year where he didn't play single cover drive. So he showed his range through the course of that year. And the Voges uh, dismissal that wasn't. So poor old Doug Bracewell was called for a front foot no ball. Poor old Richard Illingworth was the man who called it at this end, at the Vance end. It was shown on television after that his foot actually was behind the line. Voges bowled on seven. No recourse, of course, because Priscilla justice is that he heard the early call and all the rest. No way he can get around that. Uh, and that did play its role in getting the front foot finally overseen by the, the third umpire, the TV umpire. Might talk more about TV umpires in a bit. Just to quickly um, go back to those T20s that were swept by the Australian side. Yeah, a bit of momentum now for this Chapel Hadley trophy now. They've uh, broadened it out to T20s as well as one-day internationals all in the space of four days. I think there's a chance they might be able to do that on an annual basis given hmm. you know, there's always a, an interest in having T20 cricket well attended in this part of the world I don't think it needs to necessarily be in Australia by the way you could just do it in New Zealand every year there's, I don't think there's any reason why Australia couldn't do a solid by New Zealand and, and I mean that, that seems a logical thing even if it were like a BBL All-Stars style of side that came out towards the end of the Big Bash it, we know that well, India do it all the time, don't they? They have a, a dedicated T20 side that doesn't at all resemble their first team. Australia have done it periodically as well. There's one instance where the test team was in India and the T20 side was in Australia. But you know, I like the idea of them like bringing this series back and, and using it either to fine-tune for major tournaments or, or, when, or when that's not the case, just doing it anyway. Like That rivalry holds its own. Pretty much, and it's uh, just a week, and because everything's so close by in New Zealand, unlike Australia, it would make sense for them to do it in New Zealand. Like we saw uh, in this T20 series, obviously more uh, going into it or more to read from because it's a T20 World Cup here. So you saw all the big name players uh, playing in it uh, from both sides, but especially from an Australian perspective. Um, but as Dan Bredigo, I can just spot uh, walking down the steps has been indicating over the last two days, maybe bring a New Zealand BBL team and play. I mean, we see New Zealand teams in other sport, uh, don't we? In Australia and the NBL and... Uh, rugby uh, League. And Rugby League as well, so... Uh, A-League? Yeah, W-League? I think there's there is, yeah. almost every domestic tournament, come to think of it, so has some sort of New Zealand influence. I, I remember I wrote a piece years ago, probably a decade ago, when I first started writing about cricket, advocating for a North Island, South Island and Sheffield Shield, mm. outside of the Plunkett Shield, yeah. where I think the Plunkett Shield's only six or eight games a year oh, yeah, it's reduced drastically. have two composite sides that come over and play as part yeah. of the, the shield I mean it's improbable it would it ever is, happen yeah. but, but yeah, uh, the mean, way you could broaden the pool yeah but BBL like somebody else said uh, you need to I mean they're in a reduction process aren't they like reducing the number of matches the duration so adding a team might not work but no I can totally see Australia coming here every year and maybe look as we know and 
going forward yes we finally are here back back here for a test series who knows when we australia will return for a test series here it's not going to be often right like let's face it it's going to be another long wait before we are back here for an australia test series but yeah i mean a, a, a short turn around t20 series maybe mix it up uh every fourth series can be an odi series for the chapel hardly trophy depending on what world cups happening then uh, or champions trophy whatever it is i can see it happen why not i mean more opportunities for us to get to new zealand show sure. all for it never going to complain maybe yep. multi format yep. series that we've seen in women's cricket so the first t20 was a high scoring game and uh, we these have all happened since our last weekly show so i quickly skipped through the new zealand 215 for 3 ravindra and conway both making 60 odd now they've both got injury clouds over them um ravindra um picking up a thigh injury and Conway a thumb injury in the second game. So we're, we're waiting on the New Zealand camp to tell us more. It might be that by the time we've published this episode we know more from Cricket New Zealand but at this stage uh, they're both still in the squad. Zampa and Cummins went around a little bit but then the Tim David show at the end 31 not out from 10 balls the third time in a row or third time in four maybe where he's been able to strike at roughly that rate at the end of an innings and on this occasion beat Glenn Phillips at mid-on to get the win. They all played their role though. Mitch Marsh, 72 from 44 not out with seven sixes. Maxwell, Inglis, Head, Warner. They all made contributions. So a, a good sign that a team that has, you know, Matt Short at number seven in this lineup in, in game one has the depth to get their um, four wickets down and, and you got also in the periphery, Matt Wade, who caps in the third game when they did a bit, bit of a mixing and matching. But in the middle of that, the second game at Eden Park on Friday, Australia were bowled out for 174. So a less convincing performance with the bat. But Travis Head, 45 from 22, swinging at absolutely everything. And a reminder too that he is going to be at the top of the list in the World Cup as they opened with Inglis against the West Indies. But it will be Warner, Head, Mitch Marsh, Maxwell. I mean, as my um, microphone falls off, that's OK. Uh, we'll, we'll crack on. You pick that up. You can answer at the same time. Uh, occupational hazard. Um, we, we now really already know uh, broadly what the Australian World Cup team is going to be. The only real question is whether Steve Smith can stay in the squad as the spare bat. I just can't see a world where he ends up in the top seven. Unfortunately not. Uh, and that was a big takeaway from that series from an Australian perspective. Yes. I mean, there actually, there were a few points uh, on a positive front. Like I said, Tim Davids just making that position his own, isn't he, in the Australian side? I mean, we've seen him do it uh, around the world in so many T20 comps. And obviously, when you look at Tim David's T20i record, you have to keep adding that rider that um, a lot of his international success came for Singapore, yeah, right? Yeah. Like at a different level of cricket. But um, just his last four or five innings, he's proving his worth, uh, kind of proving on an international level why he's so highly rated um, in league cricket. And, you know, his unique journey is a story in itself. Uh, as we all know and, and Matthew Wade I think has made the number 7 his own since that 2021 uh, World T20 World Cup win like because you if you looked at Matthew Wade's career at that point like you know he just lost his uh, test uh, place that summer against India where he batted all like he opened and it was in the middle order he lost his one day place as well not many would have picked him to be a T20 certainty at that point but he's really worked on that aspect of he's changed the way he's approached his T20 cricket worked on becoming a specialist finisher and, and he's in there at number 7 and so those are the positives and obviously Sampa and the bowlers doing what they do uh, Cummins' bowling was that uh, stand out in the second game the full game where well they knocked him over for what was it 102 yeah. I've got it written down in front of me they were 29 for 4 at one stage just after the power play Hazelwood Cummins and Nathan Ellis all playing yeah. a role there Ellis an interesting spot in the pecking order you know sort of liked Tim David in that he's done his best work away from Australia mm. um, he performed 
magnificently well in the T20 Blast to win the comp for Hampshire a couple of years ago. And you know, you, you get the sense that if not for the big blokes they like picking for the big tournaments, Cummins, Hazelwood, Stark, that he would be almost leading the Australian attack given he does it with the new ball and in the death overs with all the slower balls and all the rest of it. But if it's him and Spencer Johnson duking it out for the final spot in the squad, that's a good problem for Australia to have in, in much the same way that Matthew Wade, he may not be the seven because it might be that Matthew Short edges him out mm. and Josh Inglis takes the gloves, right? There's no yeah, sure thing as yet, even though they don't play any other T20 internationals between now and the World Cup. It'll be hard to see them changing their pecking order and their thinking, but there is some league cricket. Of course, the big IPL, which will, um, which I'm, I'm, I'm certain will dictate mm. um, some of those line ball decisions. Spencer Johnson's been picked up in that tournament. Yeah, and all of them. Uh, and I think that's what brings me to Steve Smith and uh, the quandary that both the selectors and Steve Smith are in in terms of his uh, him somehow getting into that 15-member uh, squad for the T20 World Cup. So you spoke about the top order, so it will be head and Warner opening. Then you have options in, in Joss English and even Matt Short because he opens for the strikers, doesn't he? I mean, that's where a lot of his success in the BBL has come. So Do you think Marsh bats three as captain, right? Yeah, Marsh is at three. But yep. I, I'm talking just about um, options for, for the one and two. I mean, yes, Warner and Head start, but even say for some reason one of them gets injured or run, you know, has a few failures, definitely, you know, leaving either of them out. I'm just saying in case that happens, you have, Inglis is the first, I would say, stand in uh, as opener. And if not Inglis, it's Matt Short. And Matt Short, like, you know, he doesn't get to open for Australia because he has Warner head and Inglis ahead of him. And then you have Marsh at three, then you have Maxwell at four, and then you have either, once again, Short or Inglis uh, at, at five, and then you have David and, and Matthew Wade. So, And they've made it very clear, uh, the Australian selectors, that the only position that they can see Steve Smith fit in is at the top of the order, but there's just too many options. So they gave him two games. Unfortunately for Steve Smith, both of them ended up uh, uh, with him not scoring too many runs. And Unlike everybody else we've mentioned, he doesn't have an IPL to kind of, you know, put his name forward. So in case, say, Steve Smith had an IPL deal and he goes to India and has this incredible IPL, then he's re- and breaks the door down, that he leaves those selectors with no option but to not pick him, then it's a different story. But now, you literally are in a position as an Australian selector where if you are picking Steve Smith, you're picking him just because he's Steve Smith, mm. right? Not because you actually see him fitting into the top 15. And... You spoke about Nathan Ellis and Spencer Johnson being the toss-up. Maybe pick both in place of a, a, a Steve Smith is how they might go about it. It, it. That's how I see it, unfortunately. Yeah, well, what they're not going to do is overlook a Hazelwood, are they? I mean, no, yeah. Hazelwood um, bowled so frugally, one for 12 from his four in that in that second match and a timely four for Fazampra, I would say, for no other reason than, you know, it's always um, yeah, always nice to back up after being... You, you got, I think none for 42 from three in the first game, four for 34 in the second. Then the third game became a 10-over shootout, Australia. A rainy mm. shootout was one of those ones where they were on and off and they were yeah. constantly tweaking the DLS-adjusted score, but they made 118 for four in their 10.4 overs. Short, they, they mixed and matched a bit here with their depth players, so short up the list this time, 27 from 11. Maxi 20 from nine. English quick runs at the end. Wade captaining. Again, sort of showing how much they want him around that team. And then New Zealand only made it to 98 for three. They were 24 short of their adjusted target. Spencer Johnson bowled quick. He bowled fast. I watched this. One for 10 off 
too, but ignore that. It's just the, the experience of watching him charge in, swinging the ball back towards right-handers and uh, doing it with real pace. He picked up Tim Seifert early on and Ellis, none for 11 from two, bowling at the death. So uh, another reminder that they've got these extra options in addition to the big three who surely go because they love yeah, having oh, them yeah, at the major yeah. tournaments. But yeah, they're, they're, in a, they're in a good spot, as Jeff and I were talking about a couple of weeks ago. The idea of Australia adding the T20 crown at the same time that they're one-day World Cup holders yep. and and the, of course, World Test champions from last year as well. That, that's a that's pretty tasty for a side that, you know, four or five years ago was, was quite a way off the pace in this form of the game. Yeah, and uh, that's one thing David Warner in particular has been speaking about a lot. Uh, that's the only reason he's, he's hung on to it, right? Like, not just because he wants to play in the T20 World Cup, uh, but he wants to bow out as a triple crown winner. I mean, nobody else in the history of the game has been able to do that in men's cricket anyway. So, yeah, I mean, a lot to play for. And, and you're right. I mean, there are, this thing we've seen um, and England have benefited a lot from a lot of their fringe players going around the world and learning their trade in that sense. Uh, Nathan Ellis is a great example of that, like you said. Uh, and Spencer Johnson, well, he, uh, I was doing commentary for that Adelaide T20 guy when West Indies, where Glenn Maxwell went crazy, but it was a Spencer Johnson spell that kind of, I mean, West Indies were never going to come close, but still, he bowls so quick. Nicholas Puran was smashing it to all parts. Uh, and in three balls, he kind of told you why everyone's so high about Spencer Johnson. It's just the way he hits the pitch, the height, um, and he, what they call him, the mild thing. He's got this temperament about him. We saw it in the BBL final as well. There is something about, like the X factor about Spencer Johnson is the fact that there is no X factor. It's just a calmness about him. Um, that could make him a tasty prospect for that uh, World Cup squad. We've brushed over New Zealand a little bit here, but I, I feel like with them it's almost irrelevant what they do in yeah, bilateral yeah, series yeah, yeah, yeah. because they rock up at a World Cup and they, they get it right <laughs> at five minutes to midnight and they surely will again and make the final four as is the custom. But I mentioned before that it's unclear whether Devin Conway who mm. hurt his thumb when wicket-keeping in the second game missed the third game and Ravindra who missed the last two so eyes on those two crucial players I mean let's hope they're available for the test matches because they are they're essential if they both miss this week at Wellington the task becomes that much more difficult for New Zealand who by the way at the top of the World Test Championship rankings at the moment they've won three of their four test matches so far Australia having dropped that test at the Gabba have now slipped to third and leapfrogging them Australia that is are India having won their last three test matches the most recent of which was the conclusion at Ranch yesterday. I don't suggest us going back over that. We've already had a, an excellent daily yet with uh, Cam Ponsonby and uh, Will McPherson and there'll be a wash-up episode with Cam and Vish after they've spoken to Brendan McCullum tomorrow. But uh, it felt right that Jarrell and Gill, the two young blokes, well, I, I, I think of Gill as a younger bloke and I suppose he is, but an experienced player compared to Jarrell in his second test match, plays so straight, plays so well that they saw it through. Those two quick wickets for Shah Bashir after lunch, you can see a world where India collapse at that point and mm. they're going to this grandstand finish at Durham Shala, but it's not to be and yeah, it feels like England have in some respects overperformed owing to the spinning group they've had no Jack Leach relying so much on Hartley and Shah Bashir and earlier in the series in Ray and Army before he went home so on that front overperformed but there's been some fairly glaring inadequacies at times as well not least with Johnny Bairstow who we might come to in a moment but yeah it felt like that series was going to go the distance so I'm a bit flat on that front 
Yeah, I'm a little flat as well, and I'm almost disappointed with how England batted in the second innings. Look, I mean, we haven't spoken much about the series at all, you and I. But uh, the big moment for them was day three, right? And I've, millions of uh, reels have been written on Joe Root's shot against Jasprit Bumrah. But just the timing of that shot and where they were, one all in the series, and it's very rare do you get to go ahead in a series in India, which they did. It's very rare for uh, you to be in a position in the third test after India have come back strongly and leveled the series to be not ahead but in a very good position as they were. Like Ben Duckett had made India nervous, wouldn't he? You could see it on Roy Sharma's face, and that was the moment where you had to push the uh, really take it to India and make the most of your position, which they did not do in that test match. And again, very rare for a team to then go down 2-1 and then still be in a position to dictate terms in the fourth test like England um, had the opportunity here on day three and I think uh, that's where the game slipped away. I mean, even if um, they'd got 70-80 runs more, um, they, they, you'd think they would win. And it's kind of unfair on their young spinners. Their they young spinners kept, like, you know, for all this talk of baseball and the way they bat, it was this really inexperienced bowling or uh, spin attack that kept them in the series. Ollie Pope played extraordinarily well, but it was a Tom Hartley spell on the last day or on day four in Hyderabad that won them the test. And in each test in the year, it was all about Shoaib Bashir, right? He kind of plays a huge role in India and not getting close to uh, England's total or England getting a first innings lead uh, and again he nearly turned the game around but just the, after India made that quick start uh, in the run chase you knew that they just needed that one partnership uh, but you're right I'm so happy that it was Shubman Gill who you know we his 91 at the GABA uh, was a special innings and we thought this is the arrival of the next big thing and he's still ne- he's still the next big thing isn't he but for him to play the senior batter's role and take India home with such composure and temperament kind of tells you why he is indeed the next big thing and why he's been anointed as uh, the prince by Virat Kohli but then Dhruv Jorel I put it on social media it's like a you know Bollywood has a lot of stars and uh, you know Bollywood has a lot of superheroes and superstars but it's generally these character actors they don't come along very often and they just come and they are the ones who stick around and um, you know create their own cult following for years and years to come and this guy this kid seems to be one of those nothing flashy about him you almost felt like after Rishabh Pant did started doing Rishapan things that if now you wanted to be a wicketkeeper in India you had to be someone like him uh, but I think Dhruv Jurel at 23 has kind of said no you can do it in your own way the only flip side of everything good about Dhruv Jurel is uh, um, yeah I don't know how long I'll have to wait for another Bharat to play test cricket now <laughs> <laughs> yeah look it was great selection given that uh, Jarrell didn't I mean he did make runs against England Day but it was one of the not a million miles away from what we've spoken about in relation to, to Bashir that, that they've picked him on the basis that they like the look of a young player and that's just again a reminder that selection isn't done on spreadsheets just to go back to the the day three drama for England on, in both the third and fourth test I view them a bit differently in the third test they were coming from behind in the fourth test they were ahead I mean they were uh, when India were 177 for seven, they were still 176 runs away from parity. They added 130 runs for their last three wickets. That was all. Jurel batting with the tail. Cool deep Yadav, bless him, facing 128 balls. He was the sacrificial lamb as night watchman in the previous test match and so pleased to see him bowling so well given he had scant opportunities with Ashwin and Jadeja for such a long space of time. And yeah, like with selection, I think that's a 
that is something where England should reflect as well. You can say that Bestow's, um, Bestow's run a ball 40-odd on day one was important, and I don't doubt that. But if you're a test number five, your ceiling needs to be higher. And I actually think Bestow reached his ceiling this week in India. I don't think Bestow can bat for any longer than yeah. that before something goes wrong. And I wrote some notes at the tea break when England were 166 ahead in their second innings to the effect of all the pressure on Bestow to shepherd the lower order, has to step up right now, has to play a Steve Waugh-esque innings, but the problem is he's not Steve Waugh. And I mean, very few people are, right? But Bestow at number five in India, I always felt like that wasn't the right mixture that you want. Bestow in England, sure. Bestow when the going's good, great. Bestow when the ball's coming on, even better. Um, Bestow against spin on a track that was always destined to turn more after they said they were going to rest Jasper Bumrah. Um, that felt like a, a misstep and they've paid the price there. Um, first ball after tea, part of that 7 for 35 collapse and from there the rest is history. One last point on this series before we have to go to our first break. I just love the way that Ashwin spoke after his Pfeiffer saying that, you know, you see the difference is I'm on the east of the country and on the east of the country the ball doesn't spin as much so I need to bowl with more side spin, more undercut, the, the fleshy side of the ball and then bowl into the... I mean, who has a thought process that's that elaborate other than uh, the other, other, than, other yeah. than the spin scientist yeah. himself I mean you know <laughs> we, we couldn't be bigger fans of yeah. the way that he plays his cricket and thinks about his cricket but what a supreme performance the way that he went through the top order the way that he did it the way that he picked up Pope the way that he bowled the Karen ball which he, we, we've seldom seen through the series and he was as a presence just too much for England and I think that's something uh, we need to reflect upon as well as we look back uh, I mean there's one more test match to go but at the series is that there's because there's been so much talk about England the good and the bad side of basketball and all of that I don't think enough focus has been put on India and how difficult it is to beat India. I think this was just a reminder of, look, you can come, go to India with whatever approach you want. You might win the occasional test, but to win a series in India is an almighty task. Yeah. They, they don't lose at home for a reason, what, 17 and counting now. Isn't this it? is why, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, when, these, just, when these guys get going, turning the ball in conditions that suit, and it's not about conditions, by the way, yeah. they, but when the conditions suit, it's just so immersive. What can you do? Like, yeah, and then they find, keep unearthing talents like Yashasvi Jaiswal, and Sarfraz uh, who uh, you know we've all been waiting in Mumbai to see play test cricket he finally gets his go uh, and then someone like Dhruv Jurel comes around and I think look even if you just leave the basketball narrative aside Adam England have shown the rest of the world how to get into good positions by really taking it to India making them nervous now what they fail to do consistently enough is to make the most of those great positions and we've seen other teams do that as well Australia should have won in Delhi last year uh, you and I were both there so uh, I think England have shown that if you can somehow put India under pressure in whatever way you want to do it it's not you don't have to do it the baseball way but the only way to win a series in India is to have best days over and over again and to keep giving yourself ch- chances to be ahead in the game like England did and then hope that someone just comes through and makes it big yeah, I thought Will McPherson made a great point in that day four pod that from England's perspective now having had the Australia set piece series last year at home India away the you know, two big deal series right they play Sri Lanka and the Windies at home New Zealand away there's there's less there's less intensity in those series no matter how you want to cut it that's just the way these things are I wish there was more I hope I'm wrong and I hope that Sri Lanka and the Windies um, I hope they do something special but balance the probability that it's going to be a a more comfortable summer in home conditions and there there might be this might be the moment where halfway through the 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 baseball cycle if you think of these things in four year groups where England likes to set things up from Ashes cycle to Ashes cycle away from home that maybe we see a little bit of tweaking um, through the home summer so time will tell on that front the fifth test 
starts in Durham, Charlotte after, weirdly, a week off between Test 4 and 5. You don't <laughs> see that very often. Baz, before we go to the break, we don't have a new pledge number today, but thank you to everybody who's been involved with Jeff and me in the last couple of weeks as we've dealt with all the revisits. That was... Um, quite a task and so many people re-upping and, and sending pledges in who've been with us before which is terrific and that final word community that you join by hitting the button there is the lifeblood of the show and it manifests itself in all sorts of ways including the marathons which are starting soon we've got the London Marathon a few runners in that in April and of course up in Edinburgh massive weekend the Tabs have now booked a restaurant for us on the Friday night for 50 people that's going to be a big deal then into the 10k on the Saturday which about a dozen or so runners are in, about 30 runners in the half marathon and marathon on the Sunday, the bank holiday weekend in May. So not too late to sign up for the 10K if you wish to. Our fundraising efforts have started. Hayley Fuller, who's running the show, is going to a Tabs event next week. More to tell on that soon. But if you do want to get in early and support our £30,000 target for the Mighty Lords Tabs, that would be most appreciated. And our partner throughout the course of this summer. And look, we are, what are we now? The 27th of February. So we've got a few weeks left in our run with Seabus Super. Uh, Jeff and I went into Seabus um, Super headquarters oh, last really? week and yeah. caught up with them, which was really nice to do. We've been telling you a lot about uh, the story of Seabus over the last three months, their 40-year history, their 8.99 average returns in their default account across that stretch of time, the industry funds trustee model, that elegant solution involving both employee reps and employer reps, which defines industry funds to this day, uh, the willingness for Seabus Bus and other funds, but CBUS especially, to invest in nation-building projects to make the country grow. That's a big part of their investment portfolio. Low fees, meeting uh, the tests that everything's done in the best interest of members. But now is the time to actually get your super sorted out. If you've got a stack of accounts from when you're a casual at university or whatever it is, or whether you've just never really got on top of things before, that was me, by the way. About 10 years ago, despite having uh, had my money in an industry fund, it was spread out across about four of them. I got got my shit together. I'm much better for it personally, and you can be too. By that I mean, all you need to do is centralise it with one mob, and why not Why not centralise it with the mob who we've been working with exactly. on the final word, yeah. the mightycbussuper.com.au. Their extraordinary past performance is no reliable indicator of future performance, but all you need to do is go to their website or get in touch with Jeff and me and say, hey, lads, uh, link us up with Cbus and we'll, and we'll give you that sort intro, super and they can yeah. sort your super out. Brat break from us back in a sec with well the stuff that was meant to be in segment one that we haven't gotten around to yet (laughs) and so much more than that hi my name's kate cross and you're listening to the final word with adam and jeff Final word at the Basin Reserve with Adam Collins and Bharat Sundar Racing. We're going to stay in India where we were before the break. The WPL uh, oh. Season 2, massive first weekend. I caught um, quite a bit of the first three games on, on catch-up. Mumbai, Delhi, this crazy final ball finish. So chasing 173, five runs needed to win from the final ball. Um, Sajivan uh, Sajana. Yeah, Sanjana, I think it was. Sanjana, my yeah. apologies. I've, I've, um, I've written that down incorrectly. Hits Alice Capsi over long on for six to win the game from the final ball. One ball face hits a six. And I love these stories that are coming out of the WPL. A couple of them last year. She's 29. She didn't play in this tournament last year, right-handed batter. She's pretty much been plucked from nowhere when you look at the game she's played in across the journey. Gets her chance and hits a six from her first (laughs) ball and wins a game. I mean, it's a fairy tale. And and this is what the WPL is doing. It's not only providing a platform for high-profile women around the world to make a shitload of cash, and that Mm. is terrific, um, like like the IPL does for overseas players. It's 
the effect that it's having on domestic women's cricket in India, which will mean they're competing for World Cups. Well, they already are, but that they are going to be more likely to win World Cups sooner rather than later. And the argument for years uh, around Indian cricket circles uh, when we were waiting for the WPL to start was will we have enough players to uh, you know, fill um, all these squads up and keep it uh, competitive as a tournament. And these are the kind of stories when you have like someone who's never faced a ball in this high-profile tournament walking into bat in the last over, last ball and hitting a six to win a match for their team. Um, in Like with so many people watching as well, that's the proof that, yeah, I mean, there have always been these talents floating around in uh, Indian women's cricket. They've just waited for that opportunity. Well, it reminds me what Harsha used to say about how, or I'm sure you've had similar conversations about, when the IPL really got its groove on, it's when the clubs or the franchises realised that every corner of India there are opportunities to unearth prospective stars. And you see them, a number of them make the national team. You know, Boomer Shami are part yeah. of that story and part of that, that lineage, I guess. But the same will apply in women's cricket. Taking, I mean, when I did a women's test that India played in, I don't know, three or four summers ago now, nine of the squad members played for the one first-class team. That's not going to happen anymore. No. Like, there's going to be a greater diversity, different pools that players will be found from, different... Um, skill sets to use the modern jargon and you know we're going to see more players like Sanjana burst onto the scene and get opportunities it's different for England say where they've had professionalism for a yeah. decade take Alice Capsie right yeah. she made I mentioned she bowled that final over but she made 75 from 53 she's all of 18 mm. she's been on the scene for like three years already like her future is foretold she will be unless something goes radically wrong she will be a star of women's cricket for a long time because there's the infrastructure already in place and you know now that'll be in other countries as well yeah and the societal aspect of performances like these Adam um, you know that's what we saw with the IPL even though men's cricket has always been major um, major deal in India but what happened with the IPL is a lot of people around the country said oh you can become overnight stars so um, you saw a lot of parents pushing their sons into cricket and uh, taking a punt sometimes maybe not for uh, the right reasons but that did happen but um, you know the, the societal uh, impact that the WPL will have and especially when these kind of performers who are, you've never heard of before uh, you know uh, or unless you're a cricket nuffy uh, a serious cricket nuffy is it also kind of normalizes um, a lot more women playing cricket because yeah. there are already a lot of women playing cricket in India the structure is pretty solid at the moment but to unearth the kind of stars we see in men's cricket uh, uh, you you need uh, more eyeballs on it but also the fact that you know if you are a parent uh, and you want to say oh you know what if somebody else's daughter can do it maybe my daughter can do it as well and it doesn't need to be someone from from a main major center of India it could be someone from a little village who's watching this and I think it's great not just for uh, the tournament and uh, Indian women's cricket but I think Indian women in general when you see performances like these we've been critical of Harman Prekor for some um, external stuff in, in the last couple of years but I mean she's a big part of this story as well leading the Indians Team, but leading the Mumbai side as well. She made a half century from 30 odd balls in the first match. Jastika Badika, who I'm a big fan of, also made 50 for Mumbai. So they were off to a great start. They won their second game as well in far easier circumstances against Gujarat. Mealy Kerr from New Zealand, uh, where we are here, four for 17 for the winners and 46 not out for Harmon to chase 129 in inside 19 overs. And there was a second um, final ball finish as well in the RCP game against the UP Warriors. I hate that Z on the end. Anyway, deep D needed. Four balls, four from the 
last delivery to force a super over, um, but got two off uh, Sophie Molyneux. So um, that saw the RCB get up. Richard Gosh and Sabi Magana were in the runs for the RCB. Grace Harris made... 38 from 23 uh, in the losing side. They were chasing 158 and they got 155. So we'll keep an eye on that yeah. um, through the course but of the next... There was a five-wicket haul as well. Another great story for... Um, was it Michael Joy? Uh, like, uh, the RCB spinner, Leggy, uh, taking five wickets. Another very similar story uh, was in and around the side, I think, last year. Didn't get too many games. Maybe didn't get a single game, but then she plays and she takes a fiver. So, yeah, uh, more, more, more stories of uh, that nature will keep coming through and... Speaking of great stories in domestic women's cricket, how about Tasmania? Mm. I mean, what a, you know, Tassie have won the women's, WSEL, which is the 50 over domestic women's comp in Australia, women's national cricket league. Third time in a row, remembering that New South Wales won 10 on the trot until 15-16 and were virtually unbeatable in this form of the game. They used to be the recruitment hub. You know, players would go to New South Wales to advance their career and so on. That's now Tasmania. Tasmania are a destination club and that's been led by their captain, Elise Villani, who came over from, well, she played for both WA and Victoria at different points, but as leader, they've recruited... Um, Nicola Carey, who makes a century in the final, 111, not out from 135 balls. She's been a little bit of the forgotten woman of Australian cricket in the last few years. She didn't take a national contract last year. I've covered her in both seasons of fair break where she's been um, near enough the player of the tournament, still very capable and makes the runs, gets Tasmania over the line. They were chasing 249, so Queensland, this game was played at Bell Reeve on Saturday, by the way, uh, that Charlie Knott, who's leading that Australia green against Australia gold in, in the three-day game. Got 73 from 61 up the top, but no one really went on with it. Heather Graham, the all-rounder, um, took three for 39. Another one of these recruits used to play for uh, over in WA from her 10 overs. She was the seventh bowler used and still had time to bowl 10 overs and take three for 39. And yes, that chase mentioned Carey, 111 not out. Graham, after her three wickets, makes 63. Carey is the player of the match because she also picked up a wicket. Maybe a sniffer frustrating that the WPL players weren't about because those two comps clash. And if I wanted to be hypercritical, you know, maybe there is a way that we can manage the schedule so that the start of the WPL doesn't... I know the WPL dates came out way after the Australian like season dates, India, which yeah. is the way, but there might be somewhere in the future where this can be improved. But yeah, these recruits, I've already touched on a couple of them, but Lizelle Lee from South Africa, um, Naomi Stallenberg, who was previously New South Wales. I mentioned Heather Graham, Molly Strano, who came over from Victoria, others as well. So when you consider the extent to which Tasmania struggled in their first handful of years in the WNCL, I think they came in about 13, 14 years ago to win three times on the trot. To do it on television, this game was yes, on Foxtel was. on a Saturday night. It's a special thing and it should be celebrated and I, I love that the WNCL is a bigger tournament than it used to be and I'd love to see it expanded yet further to include three-day cricket into the future. We'll see. Oh, and that's just um, why Australia have been the pioneers in terms of uh, how to promote women's cricket. And um, I spoke about Australia promoting women's cricket and how much uh, Australia as a country invests in women's sport. On, on a channel you wouldn't expect me to be speaking on, especially not about cricket, was on Eric Bischoff's podcast <laughs> called Strictly Business. Uh, Eric Bischoff, obviously. Eric uh, Bischoff invited you onto his podcast. Okay. Yeah, of course. Of course yeah. he did. Eric Bischoff's 
good friend of mine. I'm, you know where I'm going to meet him uh, in April in Ballarat, of all places. He's coming there for a wrestling event, and I'm going to have dinner with him there. So, yeah, I was on his podcast about talking about the WWE event uh, Elimination Chamber in Perth, and we were speaking about Rhea Ripley. I know we are digressing here, as we always do. Girl, that's it. Yeah, the great Rhea Ripley from um, from Adelaide, from the Glenelg region. And uh, so, one of the questions posed to me by John Alba, who ho- co-hosts the podcast with Eric, was what it means that Australia have a homegrown a women's megastar or a female megastar in the WWE and that's when I spoke about the connection between women's sport in Australia the Matildas the AFLW the NRLW and especially the women's cricket team like you know what they meant and how um, you know how well Australian sport has kind of uh, played a role that they've played in promoting them and then that leads into our um, now having no connection to Rhea Ripley becoming a star in the WWE but it's just it's just something about Australian women's sport I think which should be celebrated it does get celebrated but I think we should celebrate it a lot more yeah yeah. I think that we've reached the point where cricket is and this is just the best right that the, yeah. the, the traditionally air quotes boys sports are just yeah, not yeah, that yeah. anymore no, they're no. just not that anymore like my girls will grow up never thinking of cricket or association football you know in the UK of course that's the, that's the main they'll never think of those as boys games no um, it, it, you know um, it, it's been inc- <laughs> again we're digressing but it's been significant for me in the yeah. last month or so that Winnie wants to bowl the ball to me yeah um, do you reckon that would have happened 20 or 30 years ago uh, it, it just wouldn't have been it, or, it, yeah it, it, these steps these giant leaps have yeah. been made and sport the country uh cricket is all going to be better off because of it and just just to finish on that like imagine like when we were growing up uh, in the backyard or in the gully where I played cricket you're always like some men's cricketer right but I remember interviewing Matthew Mott a few years ago and you're still a uh, women's coach and he spoke about how his son wants to like you know in the backyard he's bowling like Elise Perry and batting like Alisa Healy that's what we need as well like you know we need like young boys and it is happening I've seen it happen at uh, you know you go and watch a WBBL game it's not just young girls running behind and these great superstars for autographs there's even young boys like you know they want to be the next Alisa Ailey and that's just like, I mean yeah gender doesn't play a role at all in it. I want to rip my off break like Ashley Gardner you know there what I mean there you go that's what uh, you need to do now, yeah. it, it, it wasn't the only domestic tournament that was uh, sorted out this mm. weekend on the Sunday it was the men's turn interesting that the women's was on Fox and the men's was just a live stream yeah. which in a way in, in its own way just to it, that is sad like, I remember as a kid the Mercantile Mutual Cup was a you know, Channel 9 game. It was a Sunday game. It was a big deal. And in England, it still kind of is, right? You know, I know the One Day Cup is off Broadway and it's played at the same time as the 100, but the finals, especially the final, is a TV game. So I'm, I'm not being critical of anyone here. I know that there's all sorts of pressures and all sorts of competing interests, but I'd like to see that game be elevated again, even if it's just the final. Yeah. I don't know, maybe it can even be a free-to-air TV game. You know, the, the One Day final could be a you know, Channel 7 thing or something into the future. It's probably not viable to, to do that, that sort of thing, but it does feel like, you know, with... WA, who again have won three in a row, just like the Tasmanian women, playing New South Wales on the very much secondary ground over there near the prison of Silverwood, <laughs> um, which I don't know for whatever reason doesn't um, doesn't quite clock with me as yet. It doesn't feel like 
it used to when that domestic one-day tournament was played out in front of a pretty healthy crowd. I mean, I know we're going back 30 years, but yeah. I remember when Victoria won it in 94, 95. You know, that, that, that was a big deal. There was a lot of interest in it, and I think that was helped by the way it was broadcast, and now it's just not quite the same. But, yeah, New South Wales didn't make much of a fist of it in the decider. They were bowled out for 169 midnight in Joel Paris, four for 61. <laughs> The boy can bowl. Yeah. I know he doesn't bowl 150 <laughs> clicks, but takes a shitload of wickets. Get him in there. Two each for Ashton Agar and AJ Ty. So, you know, the old firm really there, isn't it now? They're such an experienced group and they win it five down with the Hotel Hilton Cartwright, 73 not out. After a wobble, they were 30 for three early on, but they had, had Nick Hobson there with him at the end. And, yeah, the WA juggernaut rolls on. Their 17th one-day tournament win, third in a row, sixth in the last decade. You've followed domestic cricket closer than I do these days, Brett, especially in the Shield. And um, they're doing something in WA which is very special. Yeah, and they all tend to be so tall as well. Like, <laughs> I mean, every time you see a young fast bowler from WA, uh, it, it's it's like, yeah, they could well just finish up and go. No wonder the WWE wanted to go to Perth. Sorry, I had to bring that up. <laughs> when you talk about tall guys, even though Vince McMahon's not involved with them any anymore for good reason, good riddance. But um, I think with um, the scheduling as well, we spent so much time writing about and discussing the scheduling of international cricket and how it fits in with T20 league cricket. I, I would not want to be an administrator in the current world. It must be so complicated. Then you're like, oh, hang on, wait, there's domestic cricket as well. At least with the Sheffield Shield, it's pretty straightforward. You play a handful of matches before the BBL and then you return to it after the BBL in February. But with the Marsh Cup, there's just matches thrown here and there, right? I mean, even the last Shield game that... Um, a lot of them would have played the last round. Queensland are playing a game in South Australia or against South Australia. A couple of days before that, they play this Marsh Cup game. Like, so you're like, hang on, wait. Like, you know, you if you're not following it very closely, you're confused. Like, you know, the Marsh Cup and do performances from the Marsh Cup matter? I mean, who was the last guy to be picked for Australia because they did well in the Marsh Cup? I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's probably Travis Head, right? Yeah. And that's a weird thing. That, I don't mean Travis Head yeah, um, yeah. version 2.0 is a one-day oh, one yeah, player exactly, and two yeah. double tons. Yeah. But it took him to do, you know, ridiculous things to get noticed. Just to go, you know, pondering about the schedule and, and domestic one-day cricket... It did find its place briefly. Not everyone will agree with this. I fully acknowledge that players especially might have a different view, but when it was at its, in its pomp, it, it was that the Shield game would be played and the one-day game would, would, would follow on the Sunday. Yeah. That's never going to happen anymore. Yeah. That's not viable with different squads and different players, although they've done a little bit of that. They but have, Typically, yeah. that model's moved on. But they ran it as a carnival in 2013, 14, 14, 15, maybe even 15, 16. Every game was on TV. Because it was that time of year when there was a, there was a, it was played on like the Channel 9 digital channel, but still, it was televised, it was free to access, and it was played at the time of year, first two weeks of October, I reckon, maybe the first three weeks, when people just wanted cricket. Remember David Warner making a double ton in that tournament, coming back from, I don't know, maybe it was injury or something else, but the teams were pretty strong, so it was the start of the season. It was co-located, everyone was together, and it was done quickly. One game every day, it might have even been some days where there were two games but there was a game on TV every day uh, and I think it um, for the most part was played at like North Sydney and Bankstown and the, the grounds that are more intimate and look I know that requires putting the whole tournament on in, in one state and that 
is logistically challenging, but you know, I don't mind the idea of them picking a window and sticking with it and seeing whether they can make it the the entree to the season. Yeah. And for for one day cricket to be played in a slightly cooler climate as well, them getting into the Shield by sort of mid-October, that may not quite work as far as trying to get as much Shield cricket in as they do before the first Test match. But if you're looking at it purely through the prism of trying to give the one day comp more prominence, then that might be one solution. Yeah, they've tried it even um, uh, in more recent times as well. I remember in 2019-20, if I'm not mistaken, uh, I mean, Steve Smith's first game back after the one-year ban yeah. was in the in the Marsh Cup. Uh, I remember him playing in that game. Maybe the same for David Warner as well. So I think they have tried that whole um, carnival model. But I guess this particular summer was so complicated with uh, so much happening in the World Cup as well, thrown in there and all of that. But I think more than even the scheduling, Adam, I think it's... Uh, what do these performances count for? Is is a, is a, is a topic for for discussion because you and I don't blame the national selectors at all. Like you spoke, you I remember George Bailey saying because there was a 50 over World Cup here last year, so even a lot of performances in T20I cricket were kind of being considered for the one day format as we saw in South Africa. That's how what they're being used for. And similarly, he said that the three ODIs that Australia played against West Indies, and I'm talking international cricket, but still, so performances there were being um, kind of scrutinized or looked at in a way of um, from a T20I prism because it's a T20I World Cup here so like if you are like you know really racking it up in the Marsh Cup do you even get a look in uh, that's that's I think a, a debate for another day it's a longer debate I think more than the scheduling it's the relevance for me that seems to uh, be an issue actually it's becoming an issue anyway scheduling has been um, back on the agenda internationally over the weekend as well we were hoping as said before to get down on to talk about his piece that's not going to happen because he's on deadline and that's understandable two days before a test the guts of his story in the age was that the big three were given a document last year by Martin Sneddon who was the former chairman of New Zealand cricket and former test player he was chairing a review into the FTP in 2023, so this was, as I understand it from the report, commissioned with trying to find a better way to run the Future Tours program in the context of this encroaching uh, number of T20 domestic leagues, IPL adjacent leagues around the world. And the subcommittee then fed into the board uh, when they met in Durban last July. And the quote in the story is that they basically rolled their eyes and ignored what Sneddon has said. So the consultations that were undertaken, it's not just a vibes thing that Sneddon, yeah. he was talking to the member nations and, and so on. And according again to the report from Bredig, this was about windows for other T20 leagues, not just the IPL, improving the World Test Championship mm-hmm. by having two divisions of six, which is an interesting idea. Put it this way, I rather two divisions of six and one division of six. Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> uh, tied ODI qualifications, so um, uh, having a, uh, those two-year cycles being uh, adhered to more rigidly. The 40-over format being introduced for one-day cricket, which is interesting. We've heard a lot of that um, over the last few years. And a better rights pooling for bilateral cricket, which is a constant bugbear of all of ours, really, that every series that's played around the world, seemingly, um, 100% of the broadcast money goes to the host board, and there's that inequitable distribution there because, of course, some boards can command more than others. So all of this seems pretty reasonable, but... The other thing here in the report was that the current system lends itself to big winners and big losers. And we know who the biggest winner of them all, the mob who took 37.5% of ICC revenue in the arrangement that was struck last year. So, yeah, it, it was pretty interesting. Other sort of creative stuff in the margins of this was trying to use... 
Australian venues in Northern Australia yeah. to help if they needed neutral venues. Like if putting on test cricket, super expensive in that glut of time in the Southern summer. Well, maybe there's a way to use those grounds creatively similarly the grounds in in England uh, in the northern summer so we saw a bit of that with Ireland last year when they weren't able to host those one days against Bangladesh they hosted them in Chelmsford instead so I don't think any of this is particularly controversial and there's some interesting quotes down the piece where um, CA sources are saying that this work won't go to waste but still that sort of that line you know rolled their eyes and ignored that's so, um, yeah. f- from those who are making the decisions and we know who are really making the decisions that's um, fairly dispiriting yeah and also to clarify that that quote is not attributed to Martin Sneddon no but no, like, no, yeah, no 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 it, it's attributed to was around, uh, like, what, yeah. what Sneddon had presented yeah, yeah exactly yeah so um, no I mean you're right it's uh, a lot of that sounds like most things that most Kiwis say very reasonable right like yeah it's uh, most of the, I mean the 40 over ODI format is an interesting one but everything else um, kind of makes sense I mean, the WTC, uh, I mean, Nathan Lyon said yesterday, right uh, below where we sat here, that uh, he would want there to be only three-match series and, uh, you know, two-match series where you feel like you're into it and then it's gone or if you lose the first test yes you can draw the series but it's not the same right like uh, so there is no decider in that sense in a two match series so uh, that was a good point a lot of Australian players have said it and Usman Khawaja was asked the same question wasn't he and he sp- spoke about it not being 100% in the know of how the finances work and I, I guess like the and like you know the equitable distribution also um, I've been thinking about it for the last few days like the, the best way out I mean even if you don't want to call it an ICC test match fund is in case like in a series like this if say New Zealand are saying look we cannot afford to host three test match series two test matches is all we can host imagine a utopian world where there is money there is this test match fund if you want to call it that that they can tap into just for that extra test we're not even saying that they need to bail them out or whatever if South Africa or New Zealand say oh we prefer a three match series but it's just difficult with broadcast money and everything else why not just give them and the only way that can happen is if um, the bigger boards India and particular like you know contribute to that fund or like make sure that look we are taking a huge chunk of the money but we can still provide for um, everyone else and then suddenly the test match championship adds even more or gets even more value because you know India test match cricket is not going to die India will keep producing millions of cricketers who want to play test cricket so too I mean Australia won't produce millions but at least thousands of them and they'll keep playing a lot of test match cricket against each other it's always about what happens to the through the rest uh, right and I, I can see a world it would benefit everyone I think if we have that option and then suddenly the loads lifted off boards like New Zealand like South Africa like Sri Lanka isn't it like yeah because we were in Sri Lanka two years ago like it was it felt so flat after Sri Lanka came back so famously and won that second test in goal you're like and what now like you know and you're left in that what now position I mean two weeks ago in or a month ago in Brisbane like you know West Indies come back but you want to see what happens in that third test and speaking to Nathan Lyon and any any cricketer you speak to they say the same I'm pleased that cricketers are now getting out and using their megaphones to talk about this my sense is that Whenever we were banging away on the final word about minimum three test series until very recently, it was like, ah, oh, yeah, sure, but it costs too much money, it's yeah. too difficult. Now it's like, okay, we acknowledge that putting on test cricket's expensive. How do we find creative solutions? Yes. Now, we've spoken before about utilising four-day test cricket. If a country doesn't have the, the, quite the same cash, okay, let's do three four-day test matches instead of two five-day test matches where you are almost definitely going to get play. Yeah. Because the very, the very presence of the fifth day yeah 
is something that costs boards even more money yeah. to put on because obviously it, you've got to open the ground up and, and put on the show and, and, and all the rest of it and have the broadcast facilities and, and so on. So four-day test matches which with extended days of 98 overs, no one wants that and we'll still have five-day test cricket yeah. in wealthier nations. But if that's the give in order to get the third test and you can play them in con- on consecutive Thursdays, Thursday to Sunday, Thursday to Sunday, Thursday to Sunday, it only adds, I think, three or four days onto a series compared to two tests of five and then that to be the World Test Championship every series having that distribution of days so there's no ambiguity around it I think that's all sensible policy making that's coming to the fore as for the financing of it again citing Harsha for the second time in the pod but we went to a dinner with him back in January where, he, where he, his view and, and look Kawaja made a good point today that it's hard from the outside yeah. to know about the financial yeah, yeah, situation of member boards how do you know if you just give money mm-hmm. to boards how do you know it ultimately ends up it might be a hypothecate of a test cricket how do you know it gets there well Harsha's view on this is that you make it a rebate system so that you once you've demonstrated that you've put on the test match and the test series successfully then you get reimbursed for it you account for it appropriately and you have it paid for and that's how the test match fund comes in and look that fund that box of money that bucket of money that we were discussing before is a tiny percentage of the revenue that that's required for India to do what it needs to do likewise Australia and England that is the money It's, it's already sitting there hopefully it can be used more creatively into the future you know, there's there's never any shortage of world is fucked moments that we have to reflect on another one. This is a small one in passing. Afghanistan are hosting Ireland in a test match this week, and that's just tickety-boo. Isn't that great? Ireland have never won a test before. Um, they played Afghanistan back in 2019 and lost heavily to them. This is being played in Abu Dhabi. The fact that they're playing a multi-format series, tick, 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 this is great. What's not so good is the main stadium in Abu Dhabi, the Sheikh Zayed Stadium, which hosts all cricket in Abu Dhabi as far as I'm aware they are not playing there quote it's no longer available to host a five day match end quote that's from Cricket Island it's being moved to Tolerance Oval instead that's the ground out the back it's kind of like a lot of the facilities where there's a secondary ground where the players train on that's going to become the 122nd test venue later this week and my understanding is this isn't a cricket thing. It's not about the Abu Dhabi, what do they call it? The, um, the, the IL, sorry, the uh, international, yeah, yeah. whatever it is, the, yeah. the comp that no one watched yeah, and finished yeah. last week. It's not, it's not to do with the ground yeah. being knackered and they can't host a five-day test match. It's to do with other mm. um, factors that will, I suppose, become apparent in the fullness of time. But... Um, yeah, it does seem it does seem a bit odd that there's this test venue sitting there that Pakistan used for over a decade and they're going to play next door and they've changed their minds at literally the last minute. Tolerance, that's what it is. Eh? Tolerance. Tolerance. You just have to, when uh, you speak about uh, world cricket is fucked moments at times, all we all need is a bit of tolerance. No wonder that is the 122nd test venue. At least we have the um, the Legends Champion Trophy Yay. coming up. Okay. At least that's coming. Complete yeah. Jibberfest, the press release during the week. The team names. The New York Superstar Strikers. Um, Lira Tiramane, who's, yeah. who's listed in that side as a bowler. I thought he was the opening batsman in the ICC oh. Team of the Year a couple of years ago. I mean, good on them for all cashing in. Yeah. Let's just hope all the players who participate in this competition get paid. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's yeah. always a problem but with these yeah, veterans leagues. You know what? I think I was when I saw this in the notes, Adam, I was, I've was i been thinking about it for a while, of doing like a proper big 
piece at some point on on all these legends leagues that are coming up and you speak to some of these recently retired cricketers and you would think like their schedule will in, in, involve like you know commentary gigs and all of that yes they do and they also and they know about so many of these legends leagues and there is a lot of money in these legends leagues not you don't always get paid yes you're right <laughs> you're running the court a little yeah, bit yeah exactly yeah you're taking a punt uh, on it literally I played in one of them last year and his stories are ridiculous yeah right yeah I'm sure they are so um, but you know that's becoming a business in its own because you can take these kind of tournaments to especially places in like the US uh, where there are people dying to watch like guys who do not or cricket fans who do not get to see all these stars when they were you know alive or active in international cricket uh, you, you still get to see them right I mean even I, I mean I keep saying Suresh Rana is still making runs in some legends league I don't know what league that is the IVL T20 there's so many going on so there's about half a dozen of them now. Yeah, yeah and most of them have TV most of them have commentators all I want to know is why don't we ever get gigs there? Maybe. Oh, right, yeah, yeah exactly right? I, I, so, look, I, don't, I think the way we've spoken of them before we're, we're not gonna <laughs> I think yeah but we don't even <laughs> but the thing is we're not even in the market in the sense we don't we're not even aware of all these leagues that, but yeah I mean if you are but you, I receive all these emails as well just like you do where they announce these squads and all these mega stars are coming and then you look through the names yeah there might be a couple but there are a lot of also a lot of names you're like oh that guy's a star good to know yeah maybe in some part of the world yeah when it comes to commentating on that I, all I'll do is quote Jeff there are lots of way to make money but they all come at a cost um, <laughs> and that might be an appropriate place to leave the uh, weekly show this week yeah, it has yeah. been season 15 episode 26 which means we must be nearing um, the start of uh, yeah won't be far away from when we start season 16 that'll be when yeah. the England season starts in a little over a month from now but we have a test match to prepare prepare for Baz we'll be back with our proper preview yes, of the right. test series tomorrow, yeah. tomorrow here at the Basin in Wellington thank you to all of our patrons for their outstanding support of what we do we don't thank them enough well we thank them every time but we can't thank yeah. them enough is what I'm trying to say um, for um, laying a base under what we do our friends at Seabus Super for being stoic supporters of us for years as well not least over the last few months the Lord's Tabs our charitable partner um, get involved and donate there ahead of the half marathon and marathon on the last weekend of May and Brett thank you to you for jumping on again as the Jeff and I haven't done a weekly for a while together we've been sort of ships in the oh, night that's but, correct yeah um, but we, Jeff and I will be doing the daily shows from New Zealand mm. um, throughout the course of the next couple of weeks. Just thinking, I didn't mention his name before. It could just be a matter of time before we have some wrestling personalities on the final word, so that'll be good. We can, I, I know Jeff will have no interest in it, so but oh, you and I, I can. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Nice little uh, Easter egg on the way there out. There you go. Okay, it's been the final word. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. I had to go about-